Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. And in this episode, I'm joined by one of the most unique riders in the pro peloton. I'm talking about Alex Richardson. Well, what can I tell you about Alex? Now, you might know him from his now famous YouTube video detailing his transition from stockbroker to pro rider. And he tells me all about the moment that changed everything for him, and that was wanting to prove himself to his colleagues. His obsession with cycling is extremely relatable, having gone from riding laps of Richmond Park to seeing if he could turn pro by putting everything he had into that single endeavour. And it almost cost him everything. He shares his side of the story about the controversial breakaway of stage three of the 2022 Tour of Britain, which I was actually commentating on. Uh, there were deals made, folks. Deals made by a former stockbroker. Fascinating insight. Now, that is all well and good. But does he know the location of the Greggs Bakery in his hometown of Roehampton? It's the question on all of our lips. So, grab a steak bake or a vegan sausage roll, plonk yourself down on a plastic chair that you might find at a community hall or doctor's waiting room, try your best to find some comfort and wrap your ears around the Alex Richardson episode. You know it's that time Alex Richardson found himself found himself relatively late in life. <laughs> Alex Richardson found cycling relatively late in life. Having made a decent living for himself as a stockbroker in the city of London, Alex admits he was fortunate enough to be in a position to be able to fund his passionate endeavour to become a professional cyclist, while supporting his family too. He's no stranger to the Sigma Sports store in Hampton Wick, and some of you fine listeners will easily relate to his obsession with finding the perfect setup to make the most of his efforts on event day. Now he's playing his deal-brokering skills in the pro peloton for Cornish Continental domestic team St Pirin and shares a fascinating story about how stage three of the Tour of Britain played out just recently. But why does he feel like he's too trustworthy? Well, there's only one way to find out, folks. Check it out. Well, here we go. Um, Alex Richardson, welcome to Matt Stevens Unplugged. Um, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. Um, before we kick things off uh, on the pod... Um, what I'd like you to do, if you don't mind, is tell us, or tell the listeners, where you are, and me, of course, um, where you are in the world and what you can immediately see around you. I like this question. So um, I have just dropped my two children off at school. I then went to Gales to get a coffee on the way back and nice. some porridge. And nice. now I'm sitting in my living room in Wimbledon Village. Very nice. And... Um, What's, what's your living room like? Because it's soft. What's the soft furniture? Just, just so I can get a real sense. And also, what it helps me do as well is understand the way the audio feels. Um, do you know what I mean? Of course. <laughs> I, mean, I completely understand. So, we've got, we've got two sofas and a coffee table in here. Yep. Um, I have a very specific position that I like to sit on, sit in in the living room, and that's by the window. Okay. okay. My feet's resting on top of one of the sides of the sofa and I'm actually sitting on a chair positioned facing the sofa. I like to sit near the window because I can open the window and cool down if it gets too hot. Right. So you, you're, you're basically, it's about control really. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Or if, if my <laughs> wife starts to tell me to do lots of things and my body temperature starts to raise. Okay. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Okay. Well, the scene is set. That That's good news. Um, of course, it's been a um, an interesting few days, isn't it? A sad, you know, sad few days. Obviously, you were riding the Tour of Britain. The race, unfortunately, um, got stopped because of the death of the Queen. Um, but so, sort of bittersweet, really, um, I guess. But how how are you after the race? Because it was a for, for the team that you were riding for, um, and obviously your personal results. I mean, it was a it was basically a pretty successful, I'd imagine, five days. Yeah, I think um, it was. We had some really good plans for the last few days because when the general general classification starts to settle, that's when the more breakaway type opportunities come. Yeah. So we looked at the stages and we had kind of planned some really fun stuff for the viewer. But right. I, like, I, like, I like the idea. I like I, that's that's to to entertain us. 
I think so. That, yeah. that was the plan. And, you know, you never know, but they were quite carefully thought out. So I think one or two of them might have come off. Um, but look, it was it was a really nice race while it lasted. Yeah. Uh, we had a good time. There were lots of positives to take from it. And yeah, of course, it's it's a shame that it was cut a few days short, but that's, that is what it is. And I yep. think although the Queen would have liked things to go on, uh, it was more of a logistical issue with police. So credit to Mick Bennett, the race organiser, for doing what he needed to do. Yeah, it was, it was always going to be an exceptionally difficult call. I don't think there was any going to be, there was never, there was always going to be people who weren't going to be happy and were going to be happy. But I think the right the right call was made. And with my background in policing and essentially being race yeah. director a couple of few years back, I, I understand the difficulties there, but a big, big shame. So, so Alex, um, I think it's worth setting a little bit of extra context, uh, context for people who are like wondering, not exactly wondering what we're talking about, but obviously um, you've been a pro for a few years now and you're, you're racing for, at the moment, for... Um, the St. Pyrrhon team, uh, based out of Cornwall. I know actually know Richard Pascoe very, very well. I've known known him since the nineties. Um, and, and then Steve Lampier, of course, was a, um, a friend of mine, well, is a friend of mine and was a rider for the Sigma sports team. when we had the team, the UCI yeah. team back in the day. So there's quite a lot of connections there. So before we go way back in time, tell us how the, the link up with the St. Pyrrhon team came about. So I think, um, it was just before nationals this year. And Steve came on and basically said to me, look, um, I don't know what you're doing after Nationals, uh, riding for Lacole. I was doing a lot of work with Yanto and yep. Lacole. Um, and I said, look, that, I think that could work. He said, we don't have a bike sponsor. You're welcome to ride your own stuff and all this kind of thing. So I thought, you know, that's quite, quite a good bit of fun. Uh, and I can put into practice some of the testing that I've been doing in the wind tunnel with various bits and bobs and equipment uh, and all the rest of it and stuff that I've learned over the past, you know, however many years. Yeah. That's, that's, cause that's quite unusual. I mean, clearly the St. Perrin team, I know that a couple, the last few years they have had, a, they've, I think it was Lapierre was the bikes that they're riding. Obviously this year the lads are, are riding their own bikes, but that is quite an unusual proposition on one hand, but also on the other hand, knowing how much, how intrigued you are, by, the, by tech and equipment, that yeah. gave you, uh, I'd, I'd imagine, quite a lot of freedom, didn't it? Yeah, and a lot of added motivation as well. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, I'm very realistic with things. And let's say if the, the difference in equipment amongst the peloton, you know, there's a massive range. And unless you're on a team with a huge budget, you, you're, you're giving stuff away. You are at a disadvantage um, because the sport's becoming increasingly like Formula One. Yeah. So from that perspective, it, it was quite good fun to know that people are actually giving me stuff back. Right, right. Now, you're, I know you, because I, I didn't realise that you guys uh, weren't right, you're, you, that you didn't have a bike sponsor, but because I saw just ahead of the race, you you got this custom specialised built up, didn't you, on this lovely colour job. So what, what was that? What was the background to that? So that was just um, Ali from Fat Creations. He's, yeah. you know, the, one of the best in the business, if not the best in the business. And I mean, I must have had seven or eight bikes done this year from him. Um, and the work quality is just something else. And I thought, uh, I've actually recently upsized all my bikes because pro cyclists always put on smaller bikes. But there's, there's sort of a trend towards bigger bikes now. Okay. Um, so I've actually upsized my bikes to what the manufacturer, the sizing chart the manufacturer does actually recommend. You know, they've okay. got so much data on bike fitting, retool, for example. So you have to put some trust in them, I think. And I, I'm a lot happier on the bigger size. So, it, And then I, with the new bike, I got it sprayed. Uh, and that was just the colorway that we went for. And it was sort of like a, a dark red burgundy type color. Mm. Super cool. I love it. It. Do, it does look very nice. It did pop. And obviously you showed it off to uh, to very good effect on numerous occasions over the five days that the Tour of Britain went ahead. So so I think because we've been touching on the Tour of Britain so much, I think we need to box the box the Tour of Britain off and, and talk about your the, the team the team's performance, your performance. You clearly came into that race with a lot of shape. You'd won the Rydale, you'd medaled in the Nationals, which is another thing I'd like to talk about in a bit. So what was the team's objectives coming into the Tour of Britain? You obviously knew the limits within you, with, within you, that you're working within, but 
there's one thing that I know about Steve and, and, and Ricky um, is that they are determined to make an impact on the race. They're not going to ride. They're not going to want any, anybody to be there and ride anonymously. So what was the plan going in? So we sort of, we probably had, we had quite a few options for breakaways. We also had Harry Birchall, who's come from the GB squad for, for the sprints, um, which actually on stage, stage five, if you look at the footage, we were probably 13th wheel and I was doing the lead up. And I, I reckon I would have, we, we were right where we said we needed to be. And that was on Cease Bowl's wheel coming into the finale. But then the, the road uh, halved and some went the wrong way, some went the right way. Uh, that was just a racing situation. But had that, the, the markings on the road, let's say, been a bit more clear. Yeah, fair enough. Um, then I think we, we would have certainly podiumed there with Harry. Uh, I would have probably got sixth or seventh myself just by doing the lead out. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were really coming in at good pace. And I had another gear to turn to with, let's say, eight, nine hundred to go to take him to four or five hundred. Right. Um, and then he said he was feeling really good on the wheel. So he just needed that little bit of guidance, which I, I'm not really one to put my neck on the line in lead outs. I'm sort of quite happy to sit up at two kilometers to go. But uh, for him, he's a really nice boy. And I just, I really wanted to give him the best um, because he deserves it. Yeah. And he's so humble and green. And I just thought that would be really cool. And he, he was right there. So I'm really excited to see what he can do uh, in the future. He's an outstanding talent. In response to the question, he, uh, with, with Steve, we probably had a couple of guys that could do seventh or eighth on GC, myself included, but seventh or eighth is, is good, but I think you, you're better off losing time and getting more leeway to do something special and try and win a stage. Yep. So that was the conclusion we came to uh, in the grand scheme of things. And did you, the stage that you ended up clipping off and, and getting third on, I mean, that, that was absolutely fascinating, is it? Because we, I was commentating with Brian Smith we, and we were doing flag to line. So we were there all day with you. We we're in the neutral zone um, with you yeah. for the whole stage. And the way, and, and the way that race evolved, um, the, the parkour, the wind direction, it was absolutely fascinating to watch unfold. And because, I mean, a lot of that stage, ended up being a, a, like a, a podcast discussion for me and Brian about the way that this stage could be divided up in terms of effort distribution and wind direction. And clearly I could see what you were doing. You were, you were straight away directing that group, weren't you? Um, which I found fascinating. And because I know it didn't quite, you, know, you ultimately got third, still an amazing result. But the fact that four of you held off the bunch um, was obviously because you were smart, but more importantly, because you used the resource you had to the best effect. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's, it's you're bang on the money there. And it's a really interesting one because we looked at that the night before and it was one of those stages where if it all goes well, this goes to the, the line uh, yeah. on a day that's really not kind of expected to go to the line. On paper, it's a sprint day. Yeah. So it was really hard to get in the breakaway, actually. Um, anyway, in, in, in the end, four guys clipped off, as you know. And, and it was a really strong breakaway. Two guys were right up there at 14 seconds on GC. So there was a, when I said to them when we got going and we were just having discussions on the road, I said, this is no good for me. I need to reset the race behind. Uh, I'm just going to go back because we're going to get no leeway with you guys at 14 seconds from Israel, yeah. uh, who were in the leader's jersey at the time. Anyway, uh, I said how I saw the race going uh, with the crosswind section and we all came to an agreement, and that agreement was the, the last sprints in mountains, 116 kilometers, we would have a, a gap. Yeah. Uh, Israel would allow us, let's say, three or four minutes. Yeah. Um, but then at that point, they had to go back once they took their bonus seconds for their GC position. Sure. And all the director sportifs had agreed this over the radios. Etc. But anyway, from 80 kilometers to 116, there was a crosswind section where we had to drive and maintain or increase the gap. Yep. Then Israel would lose interest at 116 kilometers because the GC guys came back and they would improve their GC position. Sure. When we got to 116 kilometers after 
we, I absolutely, I spent a huge amount of energy from 80 to 116 driving in that crosswind, um, thinking that I was only going to have to race one guy. Yeah. Uh, we got to 116 with five minutes. So we'd increase right. <laughs> yeah. by two minutes. And there were three things there going on. There were the fact that you're coming into the finale. So there's going to be faff uh, with gilets being taken off behind. You've got the a relatively technical crosswind section. So the in the breakaway, you can make good progress relative to the bunch. And the final one is in cycling, you never know when you're getting the next time check. So there may be a delay in time check. That is just normal for cycling. Yeah. So that, what those three factors are, are, you know, it's theirs to lose basically. Um, so that's why we ended up with five minutes by applying the pressure at the right time. Anyway, so we turned in the, into the crosswind at 116 kilometers. I'm expecting those two to sit up as agreed. I go, guys, right? What have we agreed? This is time for you to go back now. And then with five minutes, I can race the other guy. We work together to get to the line. Then we have it out of the line, for example. You're yeah. not going to lose five minutes uh, in that tailwind uh, with 40 kilometers to go. Um, and that is why... I sat on from for the last 40 kilometers because right. I'm, not, I'm not going back on my word and I'm, I want to maintain face value. Yeah. Uh, so that was it. It would have been easier for me to roll through in the tailwind on the basis that I was on slick tires for the last 40 kilometers in, in torrential rain so I couldn't go around a corner. And I could have controlled the pace better into the corner yeah. of the group so I wouldn't have to kick and get back, back on the wheel. Um, out of those 15 corners, I could have taken five of those on the front and, and slowed it down effectively um, and, and been fresher at the end. But, you know, that's 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 also cycling. And yeah, the, the, the canyon, it's, it's fair to say, actually, uh, Ben Perry, the canyon rider, he did say he would go back when the bingo rider went back, but the okay. bingo rider just did not go back, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it was, I mean, uh, it was. Because they got greedy. They got greedy and saw uh, GC. Yeah. We've now got five minutes and they're like, oh, you know, we, we can win the GC here now. So yeah. I don't know. It may, maybe you can say that's, I was too trustworthy and that's cycling and that's playing the game, but uh, that's, that's not really how I would endeavor to go about things. Yeah, it was it was one of the most fascinating bike races I've, that I've watched in a long time. It reminded me of the stage in the Giro where an ex teammate of yours, Dries de Bont, took the stage this year. When they did, yeah. they didn't have they certainly didn't have five minutes, but they only had two two and a half minutes. But what they did it was exactly the same. They applied the pressure at the points where they knew the peloton would be at the most relaxed, and also that they they also rode hard at places that were unexpected. Um, and, and it was just, there's the strength side of it, which obviously is wonderful just when it's just man to man as, as it were. Um, but then when races are ridden shrewdly and intelligently, I think that adds, that adds another dimension to it that I absolutely love. And it's happening, I think more and more now because of the, almost this convergence of, uh, of knowledge and a bike to getting quicker, right? There's all this open source information available to people, um, Everybody's getting fitter. The standard is is higher. The depth pool is deeper. So the next thing that you've got to look at is how do we be disruptive in terms of tactics? You've just got to think more. And I think that just makes it even more exciting to me as a proposition talking about bike racing and, and watching it. Too right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating one. Right, okay. Um, so the the... the the TOB, I mean, clearly you, you've got yourself in great shape. You you did a brilliant ride at the National Champs. Actually, and we're going to go out of, we're going to be going off on a lot of tangents. So I think what we should do is box off the Nationals and then go back in time to the start of your of your very unorthodox journey into pro cycling, Alex. So the National Champs, I mean, that was, I mean, you talk about tactics. I mean, there was a lot of tactics at play, but what was your what was your normalized power for that day? I'm just wondering because it was it looked apt again flag to line commentary. I did that, and I don't think I've ever, ever seen a bike bike race like it. It was insane. Yeah, so <laughs> really interesting questions. Um, I had I think an average power of 290 for four and a half hours, right, um, and a normalized of. Just over three thirty, I think. Flipping it, yeah. And I was probably around sixty nine kilos then. 
Wow. Um, but in training, I have done on, let's say, seven or eight occasions, 310 watts for four and a half hours. So right. I'm not, you know, I've, uh, let's say arguably I've got 15 watt margin there in terms yeah. of when I'm completely at my capacity. And that's why I was able to, to attack in the last, I don't know, 10K or whatever, yeah. because I still was uh, feeling okay. Um, I also worked out, I looked at some of the data after, and I kind of knew this anyway, but I reckon I, to the next best competitor, I was 20 watts better in equipment. Right. 15 to 20 watts. So you, you, when you add, start adding up the margins, you're at quite an advantage, and that's why you're there and feeling good. But I don't think, I think I would have been... On any day, on any equipment, you're always going to be, let's say, in the top five or ten. Yeah. But what all of this stuff does, adding all those margins in there, is you just allow more room for error. So you're guaranteeing if you make X amount of mistakes, you can you have the energy to correct those mistakes. Because you've got like increased efficiency while you're exactly. making mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is essentially you've got you've got like this inbuilt insurance policy because your equipment's that good and so efficient you can afford arguably to make ten mistakes rather than just five just to, to pull a number out of the air. That's that's that is interesting. Really, exactly really that. Is. Exactly that. You're just increasing that that buffer. Yeah. And 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 what was it like coming into the final then? I mean, it was um, a great group that you had um, with, with with Mark there. I mean, it, and it was it was again you've got the side that we've discussed, which is exceptionally modern, talking about equipment, giving you that buffer is, is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's a, not a new conversation, but the, the amount that it can give you um, is, is obviously, um, must be great for you mentally. But then there was this really old school style that that, that race was ridden in the last, in the last couple of laps, um, you know, the Ethan chipping off. And I, I thought, well, blimey, Ethan's going to ride away from you guys now. Yeah. And then he came back and I was like, okay, uh, it was, it it was it was thrilling. It, it really, really was. And then to be in the mix with those some of the best riders in the world, um, ultimately, you know, you would have wanted to pull on that jersey. But it's no disgrace being beaten by the likes of Mark Cavendish in the end. You know, so what was it like coming into the final? No, exactly. You know, first first and foremost, like you're losing to one of the greatest ever, and yeah, what a, a legend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a privilege to to be in that company, right? Yeah. Especially for someone like me, I'm I'm just a, a bloody fan, you know. Ultimately, um, so yeah, coming to the final with about I think Turner attacked, and I was I looked at him going up the road, and I I could just see it. he attacked too early in that headwind. Mm. He if he he could have played it better and attacked, you know, with three hundred meters to go in that headwind, not a K left of headwind to go before he turns right before we start coming back in with a tailwind yep so that was his his mistake and i looked at it and i was like this is coming back and it's coming just before we turn into the climb section so i can probably deal with turner on that climb on the basis of what he's just spent and then cav was struggling on the climb two or three laps ago quite heavily yeah so i thought he 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 might be a little bit vulnerable and the climb was my best opportunity. I did need the climb to be a little bit longer. Um, and when I went, let's say, with 6K to go, I, I did get a small gap. You did, yeah, yeah. But I think Watson was maybe a little bit too eager to chase and should have left it to Cav. But, you know, that's that's bike racing as well. And he, he wanted to win himself. So... Yep. And then from there, once I was brought back with that small attack over the climb, I knew that it was like sprinting for the podium, basically. Yeah. Um, well, it was make, make sure t- uh, Turner doesn't come back first and foremost, and that guarantees the podium. And then at best, unless Cav has a mechanical or goes off the road somehow, or I put him off the road, then, <laughs> <laughs> then I'm not really going to win. Yeah. 
no, it, it was um, it, it was a magnificent race. It really is one of the best um, one day bike races that, that I've seen, and uh, and to be a component part of that, mate, and an integral important part of it. You know, you I would imagine you're going to look back on that race um, with a lot of fondness over the years, mate. So yeah, well done, mate. Yeah, that was, I, yeah. I think it was one of the best races to watch of the year. Like it was just so aggressively ridden, always having to be forward in the race and. You know, really, you had to really think about where you where you spent your pennies, and Watson did that fantastically well. Because I yeah. I didn't know Watson before that, and I was like, is this guy from FDJ or is he one of their development yeah. team? And I was like, oh, I cut him a bit of slack because he's sitting on the back quite a lot, but he was just super clever with it. Yeah. But you know, I mean, the guy's absolutely class, absolutely yeah. class. He is. He's, he's a very, very exciting rider, uh, and he is moving up to the, the World Tour next year, which is no surprise whatsoever, exactly. considering. Um, bloody good at that level, I'm sure. Yeah, I think he will be. Well, Alex, I mean, arguably, and I say arguably because you can't, you know, stats don't lie. Um, I'm just clicking on a tab on my laptop, and I'm looking at I quit. Profe- I, I quit my job and became a pro cyclist in 12 months. A video that you, you were involved with back in 2018, one million. 47,245 views as of now. Um, and then uh, there's going to be maybe one or two people that haven't seen this video who are listening to uh, t- to the podcast. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself, just to add a little bit of context to that? Because, you, yeah, you did work in the city. You came to cycling very late, but very, very quickly became one of the best riders in the country and ended up with a, a, you know, a, a pro contract. So can you just explain what you used to do? and then how it came to be that you ended up riding a bike? So I think from a young age, I've always had it drilled into me. If you're going to do something, do it properly. And that stemmed basically from my dad. Um, And, you know, we were quite heavily disciplined when we were sort of 14, 15. It was always, how do you move forward? How do you get the most out of yourself? And there was was kind of no bullshit growing up. Um, And if I did try and bullshit, I'd be found out very quickly. Okay. Uh, so fair enough okay yeah and, and i played a, a really high level of tennis up until about 18 uh, where i fractured my back right. so that kind of ended that dream but i think i lacked the sort of finite talent to be i could have probably got to let's say top 100 in the world um but really uh, not top 50 and i found it very frustrating um because i had this dying determination and willpower but I just didn't have the talent, you know, I didn't have the hands to, to be as good as I wanted to be. Right. So that was sort of on the way out, I felt. And then I basically got an internship at Tradition uh, Financial Services, a, a huge financial services shop in the city. Yeah. I got an internship there. And then the sort of city thing started from there. And I did that for seven or eight years. I built a really good client base, uh, an international client base. I had a lot of clients in uh, Geneva, uh, London, all over the place, and some really good relationships, which produced some really good business. Yep. But I always had a massive chip on my shoulder is the wrong word because that's not how I go about life. I'm quite a positive. I'd like to think I'm quite a positive person, but. I had this issue that I was just sending a contract to people and arranging a deal and you receive money for it. Yeah. I didn't really, I wasn't really doing anything myself and I, I lacked that self-satisfaction in terms of actually doing something and achieving something. And when I picked up a super expensive road bike, because that's what you do if you live in London, you either buy a car or a road bike. Right. Um, and started hacking around Richmond Park, I just couldn't stop. And that obsessiveness came out and that addiction side. Uh, and it went from there. It, I, I ended up doing a bike race and then a bike race every day and then wanting to do this, wanting to get on a team, wanting to get my elite license within a year. Then once you've done that, so- I get a... I mean, that's that's quite. So I know. You, I mean, you've you've obviously slightly oversimplified that for, for because otherwise we'd be here a very long time actually reliving your life. But just picking, you say you went to pick up a bike. 
have you always been aware? Clearly, I didn't realise that you, you were such a you know a good tennis player. So clearly, sport you, you like uh, you know um, pursuits, keeping fit quite clearly. So what actually led you to think I'm, I'm going to buy a bike? I'm going to buy an expensive bike, and I'd imagine you did buy that from Sigma Sports, I guess. So I can actually tell you exactly what led me to it. Now that you ask, please, um, please do. <laughs> it was so in the office the London marathon was coming up and I actually really wanted to, I'd always wanted to, but I'd always maintained fitness. I went to the gym a couple of times a day, but it was more a body composition type work and less cardiovascular type work. Anyway, in the office, I was probably 80 kilos at the time in the office. They bet me that I couldn't run a three hour marathon. Uh, marathon. Anyway, six weeks out, I got a place uh, through sponsorship, uh, I think we sponsored Cancer Research and got placed there. And I started running to the office every day to prove these guys wrong because they just said, oh, you're a lump. You're not going to do it. What, who do you think you are? And I was like, I'm going to show these, <laughs> these lot. Right. And anyway, in the end, I got dropped numerous times by the pacer because you have like a three-hour pacer in the race. Okay. And the last 45 minutes left a massive scar. Uh, right. But anyway, I, I ran the marathon in 259.58. Just to give you an I idea. Flipping out. That's pretty death. Yeah, okay. And coming into the last 200 meters, I was actually dropped by the pacer. I just had no more. But they get right. in about 20, 30 seconds ahead of schedule just to account for that. So yeah. I did that. And then I sort of collapsed at the finish. And I was like, oh, that was amazing. <laughs> Right. Anyway, then I, then I went and bought this road bike and started going around Richmond Park. And uh, and then, but I, I, I understand that you, you, you obviously got addicted to cycling like most people do. It is, I mean, I think whenever you start riding, especially people who start in latter life, this is me speaking anecdotally here, um, they never look back. And clearly you, you were bitten by it, weren't you? And, um, and you quite like, I guess you, you're successful in the city. You had the resource to be able to just go and buy nice things and buy nice bikes. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I do. I'm one of these people that also when I buy something like that, nothing irritates me more than lack of value for money. So yeah. I made sure I got my pound of flesh from it. Sure. I'm not someone who I really despise people that have lots of money and go and buy expensive bottles of champagne to be seen to be drinking nice champagne. That's that's not what I'm about. I like anyone that knows me knows for certain things, I'm really stringent about what happens um, but yeah, obviously for cycling, it's my massive passion. So I'm happy to spend a little bit more money on it. Sure. Sure. But yeah, I, I always would like to think I maintain, um, touch with the real world and what real people do and don't have. And I think it's a massive privilege where you can, you can do these things. So you have to respect that. Yeah. I'll tell you what, um, we're going to pause now, only very briefly, um, and I think the next step after this next segment of the uh, of the podcast, we'll move on to your very rapid rise from from just getting fit to racing and and getting a pro contract. Um, but um, when I messaged you and requested um, you come on the pod, I did ask you where you were brought up. Um, it's in Roehampton in London. So, Alex, it's now time for the Roehampton quiz. Okay. Yo, yo, what's up? Y'all ready? Uh-huh. Let's do it. Ta-ta, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Roehampton quiz. There you go, mate. What do you reckon to that? I'm, I'm sat here scratching my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time for the Roehampton quiz. Did you expect a quiz? I didn't. I didn't. You didn't. Now, please don't worry. Um, please don't uh, now say that, oh, my internet connection has fallen out and, and leave us because um, it's a multiple choice quiz, okay? Um, so that there's no stress and they're very loosely based around Roehampton. Um, so if you, I understand you're sitting comfortably. You know an open window or a window at least that you have the option to open or close. Um, are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Good stuff. Right, question number one in the Roehampton quiz. Um, the University of Roehampton, formerly the Roehampton Institute of Higher Education, is the first university in the UK 
to offer what type of scholarship? So the University of Roehampton offers uh, a type of scholarship and it's the first university in the UK to do it. Is it a scholarship for A, surfing, B, the study of mushrooms and the social impact they have, C, esports, D, study of pet videos on the internet. So, surfing, the, the, the study of mushrooms and their impact on society uh, from, from a basically a hallucinogenic point of view, esports or pet videos. I'm going to go for B on the basis of people that I see coming out of there. Okay. Um, it's not B. It's not the study of mushrooms. It's esports. Mm. There you go. Yeah, it's the first union to have an esports department, um, which is which is amazing. Uh, they've actually got an yeah. esports mini arena at Roehampton University, mate. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's amazing what you learn. Um, okay, question two. So, sporting. I thought they were very sort of creative. Yeah, I guess because esports, e I think it's more it's computer games, isn't it? So it's a, again, it's sports loosely, isn't it? The esports e one is a funny one, um, but yeah, they, they've got. Um, yeah, they study esports and they have their own arena in there. But uh, there you go. Okay, this is an etymology question. Um, the row in Roehampton is thought to refer to what, Alex? I say so the row in Roehampton is thought to refer to what? Was it A, the row parlour that was on the original site of St Mary's Hospital in the 1820s? So there was a, basically a, an establishment that sold ale and fish eggs. Um, B, um, the large number of rooks uh, that inhabit the area. Um, C, uh, there was an ore factory that once stood on Putney Heath um, from about 1485 to, to 1500. Or was it D, the large number of ravens that inhabit the area of Roehampton? So what do you think it I'm is? Gonna go, I'm going to go for A. So the row parlour on the original site of St Mary's Hospital in the 1820s. Yeah. It's incorrect, mate. I made that up. It is the large number of rooks oh. that inhabit the area. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. I, oh, I, I tell you what, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of fun coming up with these fake answers. Um, it's sort of, I find it quite invigorating. Yeah, I'd like the idea of a row parlour uh, on the site of St Mary's Hospital. Mm. Right, okay. Don't worry, you're halfway through. You've got no questions right, but you could still bring this back, all right? So you stay focused. better. <laughs> right, here we go. No. This one is a, well, it's, it's just a question. Uh, of course it is. Right, question number three. Um, on what road is the only Greggs in Roehampton situated? I know that one. Do you? Of course I know it. All right, okay, okay. roll. Is it... Uh, can you just tell me? I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a bonus a bonus point if you can tell me without me going through the the multiple choice. Oh, Danbury Avenue. It is Danbury Avenue. You get two points. Well done, Squire. No, that was oh I flipping heck. I mean, that was. <laughs> what's your? Uh, I, I, we, I did a, a, a Greg's question with Connor Swift, um, and he was very good actually. Um, but where he lives, there's about five Greg's. I think there was uh, up north. But yeah, Danbury Avenue. The options were just out of interest: Putney Heath, uh, Rodway Road, and Clarence Lane. But Danbury Avenue is the right answer. Good Greg's knowledge, right? So the final question, uh, Alex, in the Roehampton quiz is more of. Um, um, it's not really a question. It's a challenge. Okay. So, do you have a pen and paper uh, nearby? Um, iPhone notes? How does that work? iPhone notes is fine. Um, okay. So, fire up that. Yeah. Um, and what we're going to do, what uh, the question is, the word Roehampton, within 30 seconds, I'd like you to come up with as many words using the letters of Roehampton as you can, okay? Um, and you're going to get, we're going to work out, um, well, you're going to get a point for each question and then we'll work out how, how that sits in the overall, okay? So a good score would be about eight or nine words, 
okay um, so when you when you're ready we'll start the countdown so if you've got your, your little app open okay um, are you ready to go so as many words as you can so it's got two O's in it so you can use obviously two O's etc in one word um, for example so um, here we go three two one Roehampton top Hampton ramp yeah yeah map yeah amp yeah not yeah tampon yeah hat come to us hat Oh, let's let's just count those up, um, and we are going to allow nouns. Um, so it's just one, two, tampon hat. One, two, three, four, five, six, and eight questions, which gives you eight points. We're going to we're going to convert those into normal points, so it gives you two because each one's worth a, a quarter. So in fact, you did somehow um, get a hundred percent because you got four points for that. Therefore, a hundred points. Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> Four points for the for the overall. So you basically got one hundred percent in the quiz. So well done. Well, well done. By the way, not doing that with a pen and paper, because um, if I'm ever doing a word quiz like that, I do need to be grounded with a pen and paper. So you went very modern. So well done to get that many words. Uh, and apologies and apologies for not asking you to get a pen and paper in the first instance. So uh, yeah, um, well done, mate. Um, did you enjoy that? I found that really fun, actually. Yeah. Good, good stuff, mate. Good stuff. Well, um, it's kind of loose things up a little bit. We're going to get back to um, to your rise, basically, Alex. So, so you got these got these bites. You got fit very, very quickly. Um, so, and the first t- the first pro team you joined w- was one probe, wasn't it? In in twenty seventeen, is that correct? Uh, twenty seventeen. Yeah, it must have been Canyon. Canyon first, yeah, and then and then one pro were pro Conti at the time, weren't they? Uh, they were pro Conti at the time, yeah. Did I join them in two thousand and eighteen? I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to do the classic yeah. things here. I'm going to have to go to pro cycling stats and have a look. I'm not um, sure it's in there. Maybe it is. Yeah, it is in there. Um, oh, it is. Yeah. So basically, you, yeah, it was Bike Channel Canyon, wasn't it, in 2017? That was, yeah. um, and then you joined One Pro, but it was a, sh- a short tenure, wasn't it? Um, at, at One Pro for reasons that you've, you've gone a record. So, 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 talk to us about the One Pro experience um, and, yeah. and why you had a little bit of a break, if you don't mind, Alex. Of course, it was just that classic of pushing really hard, chasing somewhere where you feel you have to catch up a little bit. Sure. I, I ended up pushing my weight really far, training. Really, it wasn't even the training; it was just the fact that. I probably wasn't eating enough. Um, and the whole thing was just got overwhelming. Over, it, I was just overwhelmed by the whole thing in the end. After doing it for five months over the winter, being so stringent on yourself, come February, March, I just exploded. Uh, I've never, ever felt anything like it uh, since uh, in any business scenario or high pressure scenario or family scenario. I've never felt anything like it. Um, and I was just destroyed. I, I literally just turned my phone off and just spent time with Cara and the kids. And so, so, this, so this was the pursuit of, um, the ultimate power to weight ratio, I guess it's the pursuit of getting lean, isn't it? Which is, um, something that is, I think it's good that it's talked about a lot more now because it's, um, obviously power to weight is, is the Holy grail, but the, the cost of that and pushing too far, is in, is enormous, and and we've seen people leave the sport because of it. And clearly, you got to a point where you nearly did. And 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 I understand that you were so lean, and your your body weight dropped so low that it started to affect your immune system and stuff. And and am I right that some uh, um, a physician advised you that you were in a pretty bad place? And this was just the pursuit of getting as ripped as you could. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, like my pout to weight looked really good, but then anything above threshold you just can't push the pedals very hard because you're not very strong sure um psychologically and subconsciously like you start to become drained because your body is telling you that it's really tired and yeah i i went to a body fat dexa scan 
I think it was February with one pro and my body fat came back at like 3.8%. And I'd eaten away so much upper, upper body mass full stop. And then, uh, because there's no more fat to eat, uh, eat against and you're starting to eat up the fat around your vital organs. So right. it's just, and I, I was doing things like we'd do weigh-ins in the morning. I dehydrate myself in the bath. So I looked really light. Um, all this kind of thing, just pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. It's in my nature, but it came to a point where I said, if I cannot actually, um, in learn to enjoy this, then I'm just not going to do it yeah. because yeah, I, I'd like to think I'm someone who can see the light in pretty bad situations, but I couldn't see light at the end of the tunnel anymore. Was this a self, and clearly you are, quite, you are a very driven individual, especially looking at the industry that you worked in successfully for a time. It does take um, people with drive and, and, a certain, and a certain mindset. So is it fair to say that this regime that you imposed on yourself, which ultimately caused quite a lot of damage, you know, you know, psychological damage. Was that self-imposed? Obviously, there's, from a societal point of view, uh, within teams, there's always, there's a, there's an, an atmosphere, isn't there? Like, you know, the best thing is to get as light as you can, although it might not be necessarily, you know, you, you're fat, get light. But did you just get swept up in all that? Or and was this completely and utterly just you driving too hard? I suppose a combination, but probably predominantly the latter. Right. Um, just it's in my nature to push everything to the the limit and question everything, uh, which I think has its benefits and it has its drawbacks. Even this year with equipment, like I'm changing stuff in the days before the nationals, which I really shouldn't be. Uh, at Tour of Britain, I was doing the same thing, fiddling about all the time and trying to keep searching for the best. And you, you do learn a lot in that process but you have to be really disciplined at times just to not push too far. And I think as you get better and more confident, you're able to manage that better. Yeah. Because you have more confidence in your ability and in yourself. But yeah, it's, it's always going to be a thing with these type of people. And there are so many of them in cycling, um, you know, really driven, motivated people. And that's why it attracts that kind of personality, I guess. It's uh, the, the fact that you, you said these type of people when you're actually referring to yourself, that, that's, that it is, it is quite, quite interesting. You can clearly, clearly have a lot, you've learned a lot now and, and just by the, the manner of the way that you're racing and you're in a smaller team after a couple of years with Alpes and Phoenix. But is it fair to say from what I can see, Alex, you've learned a hell of a lot from that uh, and you are now you know, still in the constant pursuit of getting quicker uh, and more efficient. Yeah. But you seem to be, I mean, from a, looking at you physically, you, you seem to be in a physical state that is like, this is Alex Richardson, a, a you know, good bike rider, not somebody who's trying too hard. You just seem to have found the right balance where you can actually enjoy racing your bike. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And you know all of those things and you know, let's say two or three weeks out of a race, you might tidy up on a few things. Um, but day-to-day life, you know, I get try and uh, train pretty hard. Uh, I don't starve myself of anything. I yeah. eat well. I eat what my mum would have told me to eat. Yeah. And I have a glass of wine quite regularly. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel I'm suffering too much, basically. Uh, right. And I think with that, you actually really enjoy the training a lot more. And you're a happier person, which ultimately a happy athlete, if you can get the athlete in the right place, that athlete is going to be a good athlete. Yeah, no, totally. The After one pro and you took a break from the sport, we all know you came back, won the Lincoln Grand Prix, famously on your Todd in plain black kit because you 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 were riding as an unsponsored rider. And then talk about the couple of years you had at Alpes in Phoenix, one of the, although only a pro, a pro team, a team occupying the second division. In essence, it's a world tour team because of um, the, the, the race program it has. What was that couple of years like, Alex, for you? And and I'd imagine, just looking at the date, 2020, 2021, it, it almost couldn't have come at a worse time in terms of the global pandemic at the time. But that aside, what were those two years like for you? 
Really nice. Um, really, really good experience. They, I was, I, I maybe I was pigeonholed a little bit into that sort of uh, riding style that I'm quite good at, and that's long efforts on the front, traveling quite fast. Which, but it was great to be involved with some of the big wins we had had at World Tour level. As the underdog, that's always an amazing environment to be in. Yeah, and I think in the end. You, you could stay and do that kind of role, but I didn't find it particularly satisfying Okay. once I'd done it. And I sort of wanted to keep evolving myself and challenging myself. And the travel is a massive commitment as well. You know, pro cycling, unless you're winning all the time and getting paid a massive amount of money, then it's not all it's probably lived up to be, maybe. Yeah. Right. And once you recognize what you want, then that's a really nice place to be, I think. Um, so I was quite, I was quite happy to do that. I, there, there's still stuff I want to do in the sport. I'd love to, to work with like an Ineos and further my learning there and help these younger guys like on a psychological level, level as much as anything, uh, the Ben Turners, the, the Teos, the Ben Tullets, uh, the Josh Tarlings, you know, these, these young guys that have maybe seen me come at it from a different angle. Um, and that's why I think Cummings is one of the greatest additions to that squad in terms of very varied thinking. Yeah. I know he, he's a, <clears throat> although on, on one hand he comes from a, well, he's a, a fair bit younger than me, but he's, um, we did, we did race together. So there's an old, came from the club scene as well, but he's, you're quite right. The way that he thinks and the way that he looks at bike race is like somebody who hasn't necessarily been in the sport for that long or come to it from the side, coming new. So he's quite, the way he thinks is counterintuitive because he's come through the sport in a very traditional way, yet he thinks really, really differently. Just the way he carries himself, Steve, he's a lovely, lovely guy. Been on the pod, lovely, a lovely guy, but thinks completely outside of the box. And, and you know, when you have somebody that thinks outside the box, okay, it might not work all the time, but it bring it makes people think differently. And I think this is going to be the next era of our sport, as as I alluded to before, because we're getting quicker and, and the margins to find extra speed are becoming narrower. The next level is we think better. And... Um, and clearly that is a realm that you find quite exciting. Absolutely. Um, yeah, completely. And, uh, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, even let's say the stage three breakaway, just using a random example. Yeah. You're not beating these guys on power. You, you have to beat them on intellect and a lull between discussions between who takes up the chase behind. There, there's always a time differential there where you, where you can capitalize. Yeah. Uh, on stage five, I worked out that, uh, no, sorry, on stage six of the Tour of Britain, which was not to be, I worked out that there would be a lull around 80 kilometers to go between the GC teams and the sprint teams, and a breakaway would have formed. Um, and I, I thought you could ride over, you, you get five guys who are not in contention for GC, and you could ride over that two and a half to three minute gap with 80 kilometers to go. The breakaway would be tired, uh, and you could take who you wanted to take to place your favour. So you could, as as the a team, kind of decide who wins the stage uh, and do it in a really different way. There was definitely an opportunity there, given the start was hard as well. Yeah. So, but you, you just put people out at the right at the right time. I didn't see DSM riding anyone back or and Ineos would have potentially done a similar thing to what they did on the third day where they wouldn't let a breakaway go until Magnus Sheffield and actually an hour Harry Birchall went up the road for an hour and a half with them. So yeah, it was all, I was definitely thinking about it. So you say, I mean, you're 32 now, if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, how... Have you got any plans for what to do next? Uh, I mean, you, you clearly have a little bit of freedom in, in the decisions you can make, which is, I'd imagine, lip, quite liberating. But do, have you got a plan for the next few years or at some point are you looking at stopping racing and, and doing that sort of thing? So have you, have you got an idea of exactly what you want to do yet? 
So I had, I've been brainstorming a few things. So one thing that we'll probably do in the immediate future is keep, uh, I'll keep um, doing my investments and watching the financial side of things. I think there's uh, property coming up on the market that we might look at developing. Okay. And from a cycling perspective, I can see making some big differences to some young guys in like a St. Piran where I have more direction. Then if it's not a St. Piran and there's an opportunity to do something bigger in the sport, like with an Ineos or a Jumbo Visma or one of these guys in performance and working with athletes and bettering everyone's learning collectively, then I would love to do something like that. Uh, I have had conversations with various people, but nothing's materialized as of yet. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at with it. I, I would like to do sort of a, a racing type performance role as well, a racing and, and be that inter, intermediary between the science and the rider, because I think sometimes the science isn't delivered correctly to the rider in rider's terminology. Yeah. Because the rider needs to be really happy with what he's being told to do before he buys into that and believes in it. And it's just like when you tell someone they're good and you believe in them, it can be a really powerful tool to use. Uh, You look at Jack Rootkin Gray, who came from the British National Development Squad. All I've done for months is just tell him he's good, tell him he's going to win. And then like he came second at Rydale, for example. He was in that elite six or seven on the Queen's stage of Tour of Britain this year. Uh, And you've got the top, 15, 20 guys in the world in that elite four, elite five. Uh, and he's only 19 years old, but he's a massive believer in himself now. Yeah. So I think that, that's really cool to, to see and help others and, and see actually just see the happiness in what they've done. They can't believe it. They're like, well, I felt I, I, I was there with those guys and I, I actually felt yeah. all right. I, I can <laughs> see they going. I'm like, yeah, like, you're pretty good, yeah. mate. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it is quite an interesting one. It's it's a, a part of the sport that um, that I am not directly involved in. But I've, when I did manage the Sigma Sport team back in the day, there were some lads in the team who were exceptionally gifted bike riders. But there was there were several times when they struggled with a couple of results, and it was just reminding. Ultimately, there was nothing physically wrong. It was just they'd got themselves into a bit of a hole after a, a run of bad results and had forgot that confidence they'd lost the, the ability to believe in yeah. themselves. And, and it was a, a, just a case over time of just building that confidence back up just by speaking to them and reminding them of what they'd already achieved. And the fact that achieving what they'd done actually should actually be making them even better as well. So, and it takes quite a bit of time to realize that, but it's a, it's a really where it fits in the sport now is quite interesting. It's, it's not, necessarily an academic role it's not something i don't think you can study for it's something that is is quite vocational and i think you have that kind of skill or you don't but i think it's enormously important as we get more and more data sets available to try and make sense of you can't lose sight of the fact that these are people these are human beings that you're dealing with Um, and there and there's you've got to get back to basics it's but i i find that part of the sport fascinating there's some very very easy wins just by speaking to people and reminded them of their own talent. It's fascinating, isn't it? Of course. And, uh, and I think this is why I've always been very fond of you because you've got a really nice way of, in- of encouraging people and speaking nicely of people. And I, I just think that really goes a long way. You know, these young guys that are listening to the commentary back when they're looking at the races and they're hearing how you uh, describe a situation and, and, say how talented they are or or whatever you might say. It's always got a very positive feel to it. And I think that's really important. So, you know, I must thank you for that. And it's, it's for someone like me as well, I found it really encouraging. Uh, It's, it's, it's quite nice. So keep that up. And I think the, the sport is all about encouraging people and you can be clever with the information you have. You don't have to tell people the answers, uh, all the time, but definitely be nice to people because it's a small world, and ultimately we're we're doing it for enjoyment and to make something of ourselves. Yeah, no, that, I think that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. That's what I, I try and do, and and the reason I think I'd bring that into the commentary without 
it's not about me just blowing people like smoke up people's asses. If I see something, um, I know that nowadays a lot of these races are clipped up and put on social media, and I know that the effect that it can have psychologically in a positive way. And on a, a very small scale, I, I remember doing some races, and not hardly any of the races that I did were were televised, apart from the big work, the, the, the kind of work equivalent of World Tour ones back then. But I remember yeah. playing some stuff back when I was in breakaways in the milk race when Phil Liggett was commentating and doing the same thing. And I remember the, the impact it had on me was profound. Uh, yeah. you know, the Olymp- I didn't break in the Olympics, in the break in, in the few editions of the milk race, and it was on TV, watching it back. And it, I just wanted to get, get out of my bike and ride harder. I just, it, the, it, the level, it, it just inspired me, and it's, it's never left me. Um, so I, I feel I have a duty to to not necessarily do the right thing, but I think it, at the right times, you know, um, and deservedly, I, I, need, I feel I need to give it back. Um, so that's, that's that. I think that's the, um, as well as just calling the race and giving you the facts, trying to convey a story. Um, I know that people watch it back and I know what it did to me. <laughs> so, exactly. And, you know, the, and that doesn't, um, you know, not to mention all the knowledge you possess in terms of the knowledge of the riders and how the race is going. That's also very, very rare. And, and um, you know, I actually, it was funny because watching the last 30 kilometers, kilometers back the other day in the tailwind to a Britain when I sit sitting on and like I say, it would have been easier to roll through there. I don't know. I saw like three or four comments online saying, oh, if you're going to ride like that, sit on like that, go home or whatever. I I smiled because, you know, it's in the background, there's always something going on and there's a really, a a reason to everything. And I think you were very aware that there was probably a little bit more to it. Yeah. I I didn't know the answer. That's the thing. That's the beauty of it. It's like, because I was surprised and I didn't realize you'd invested quite as much as you had midway through. I didn't know that. So you're trying to fill in the gaps and, and there should always be as well an element of mystery here, you know, because what we're trying to, to convey is, is we, we're trying to deconstruct it and explain a story, but we don't know everything. You know, we don't know what's going on in your mind. And, 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 and also there has to be a bit of jeopardy and a bit of suspense you know, if if every time we said this is what's going to happen today, we might as well say, "Oh, okay." We're, we're storytellers as well, but it was quite. The, I, I didn't know what was going on with you, and I didn't realize. And, and obviously, you're backing off into some of those corners. I thought, okay, that's interesting. It must be some. This is consi- This is a pattern here. So some things are playing, and having you explain is like, oh, all right. It, it's it's the whole thing is fascinating. There's so much to unpick, but also the air of I like the fact that there's a constant ambiguity because we don't know all of the answers. That's it's uh it's it's richly textured. It really is brilliant. I mean, bike racing is just <laughs> it's amazing. brilliant, mate. It's amazing as well. Yeah. It's brilliant. Well, Alex, it's, it's do you know what? It's been a fascinating chat. Um, I've really, really enjoyed uh, your your time. Thanks for being so generous with your conversation. Um, but we are, yeah. I knew that Random would happen. Question alert. Sorry about this, mate. Unbelievable. Random question alert. It is time for a random question. Right. <laughs> okay. So I've just walked across the room and torn off the um, the bit of old school computer paper with the, with the holes on either side. Um, and this random question is as follows. I've never seen this before, Alex. Uh, are you ready? I think so. Okay. Have you ever been to a country or city and thought, I never want to come back here? And if so, did you ever return? Oof. I've probably been to a couple in bike races. <laughs> yeah. This is really horrid. I know, I'm sorry, but I didn't I didn't script this. I know this this podcast has taken a bit of a strange turn, but again, I, I have to uh, ask you to answer it as best you can. Um I know where. Um where? Tour of Almaty. Oh yes. Pakistan. Almaty, I mean, look, it was, it was, it must have been four years ago. Okay. It was really cold right at the end of the season. And there's this very sort of Soviet feel to Almaty. And people are just not very talkative. They don't really smile. I had a problem with the bike there and I had to borrow a bike for another team. And it was just all going wrong. Right. And, and that, I, was, I was definitely ready to come home after just a couple of days. 
And so you I, did. I never returned. And you've never returned. So it wasn't one of those places that you thought, you know what, I, I really want to bring um, my wife back here uh, for a lovely drink uh, and a bit of a holiday. So I didn't, didn't have that. No, that doesn't no. that. <laughs> well, there's the answer. It is Almaty. Um, it's a race that I've never commentated on, but I've seen it re- over recent years. It has. We've started to commentate on it as we've got more and more races in, into the portfolio. But um, it is one of those races that's kind of shrouded in a just strangeness i think it's fair to say and but you've had that first hand and um so so if you're offered a deal with it with a team next year and they said by the way the tour of almaty's on on your rock would, would you would you pull a sickie <laughs> I mean, it, you, might, you might have to start thinking of a few different alternative solutions and planting a seeds a little, you know a few months in advance for that one Good stuff, mate. But fair enough. Well, I'm sorry to have just thrown that curveball at you to, to wrap up and wrap up the podcast, mate. But thanks very much, mate. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. I wish you all the very best for the um, for the remainder of the season, uh, whatever that entails, mate, and um, and for the future as well. But uh, keep on doing what you're doing, mate. And yeah. um, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Rat. A happy athlete is a good athlete, and I think that's the takeaway we can all enjoy from that chat with Alex. What an interesting and driven guy. And I really do hope he continues to pioneer his way through the pro cycling world. Chapeau to you, mate. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, follow, and rate the pod, and maybe give it a little review if you feel like it. And why not recommend it to a stockbroker doing laps of Richmond Park or any other local cycling facility to you in the hope they too take some inspiration from Alex's story. Now, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, please do. You can do that by emailing our email address, which is, you can email our email address, that's unway, unusual way of doing it, um, podcast at sigmasports.com. I could have said that far more simply, but you get the drift. Or... Even more excitingly, you can leave a message or a voice note on her WhatsApp number, which is, listen in, get a pen handy, plus four four seven 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 eight three two three two six eight. I won't repeat that again, but you can scrub back and listen to it again if you want to. And finally, a massive thanks again to Alex for joining us on the podcast today. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye. Goodbye.